On that note, let's pray. <laughs> Dear Lord, as we find ourselves in your presence, we ask that we would empty ourselves of ourselves, ready to be filled by you. Help us to cast aside any preconceptions and help us to be open to the leading of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this place. Thank you for everybody here. So we commit this time into your hands, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hello. Um, first thing I want to do is to read from a rather good book called The, Ed the Empty Space by probably the world's greatest theatre director by the name of Peter Brook. And he says this, quote, I can take any empty space and call it a bare stage. A man walks across this empty space while someone else is watching him, and this is all I need for an act of theatre to be engaged. Welcome to theatre. I'm serious. This is it. This is precisely what theatre is. An empty space, a person, not even an audience, maybe spectators, as we'll discover later. So, what I'd like to do is to give you a sort of bit of a road map of what the talk is going to be. First of all, I'm going to give, if it's possible, a sort of whistle-stop tour in 15, 15 minutes of the history of theatre. Quite a miracle. I will fail badly, so please forgive me. Secondly, I want to talk about major influences in the theatre, both those who have written plays, but those like Peter Brook who have formulated whole new ideas of looking at theatre with a view to having a look at their views regards the church in parallel. And then lastly, the Christian response and the challenges facing the Christian actor. So I'm only going to talk about Western theatre, England, UK in particular, for obvious reasons. <laughs> I know nothing about American theatre, Japanese theatre. Wonderful as they are, I know zero, so I'm not going to talk about it. Okay, first of all, a little bit of biblical trivia. Who is the first person in scripture to receive God's spirit? Any idea? Hmm. Isaiah? No. No. Good guess. Good guess. Samson? No. Nope. The one who was called to build the uh, tabernacle. Exactly. Thank you. His name is Bezalel. And it means in the shadow or the protection of God. And the first person that God said, I am going to incarnate myself, make myself presence in a human being, is an artist. Isn't that wonderful? No, I'm sorry, as an artist, my heart just goes, yes! Why doesn't the church go, yes? But it doesn't. And here in scripture, here is this man, Bezalel, and God says, I am going to work with you. You and I together are going to create the tabernacle. You and I are going to look at the whole field of imagination. And there will be dark places in the imagination. But God says, I am with you. So, 
Bezalel. Please don't forget about Bezalel. Particularly through the scope of the course of the talk rather tonight. Because Bezalel will keep popping up in so many places. So, birth of theatre. Nobody knows where it started. I read one book who described two pro-Magnon pro men going ag and mug and whatever it is, and one sort of talking and saying, you know, my moose was bigger than your moose, and let me show you how I did it, and that was supposed to be the beginning of theatre. A bit <laughs> stupid, all very Monty Python, which is wonderful. <laughs> but no, nobody knows. But the first major development is the Greek theatre. So we're talking about, whoa, two, three thousand years ago. Greek theatre, very formal, a chorus, a protagonist, a problem, and gods. Stir them all together, and what have you got? You've got to play. So you have a person like Oedipus. Oedipus is a hero, but he has a flaw. He has quite a big flaw, in fact, because he murders his father, marries his mum. <laughs> he has problems. All through this action, you have the chorus, which is society stepping forward and making comments. This goes on and on, not just in Oedipus, but in all the Greek tragedies and all the Greek plays. Until you come to the point, and this is a phrase I'm sure everybody has heard, Deus ex machina. God by the machine. Basically, in the Greek theatre, way up there, was the character who was playing God, and literally they would trundle him down on a small little machine till he comes down, he touches earth, and the gods solve all the problems. Deus ex machina. The other great phrase that was taken from Greek theatre was catharsis. The whole idea, so Aristotle said in his poetics, was that there would be on stage that which would purge whatever is happening in the spectators, the audience's hearts. So that theatre was not just simply to be, oh, isn't it nice? It is supposed to attack the heart. To attack the heart in the way that says, well, what's your problem? You know, what are you doing about this? What is happening? How can you? <coughs> and that all happens in Greek theatre. Second development, particularly this would be of interest in the church, was the Roman theatre. <laughs> it's bawdy, it's bloody, it's licentious, and when the early church was trying to establish itself, it just said, no way. We're not going to the Roman theatre, we're not even going to get involved in the theatre. A foreshadowing, perhaps, of what was to come hundreds of years later. But the most exciting development took place in about eight, nine hundred in England. The monks had established themselves in monasteries in the islands of Lindisfarne and Iona, way up in the north of England. What they did, and don't forget, there were no books, they would get on their carts, they would cross over into the hinterland, they would set up in the village square, they would put their carts in a semicircle, and the carts were not flat, they were raked. And that is why if you go to a stage today, the stage is raked. It's not flat, because it gives you a better sightline. And the monks would tell the story of the gospel. 
time and time again. And they would stay. They would evangelize. They would start a church. Get back on their carts, go further into the field, do exactly the same thing. Come back to Wyona, come back to Linda's farm, come back the next season, and then find out exactly what was happening to these churches. That was evangelism. And it was done with theatre. When did you last see theatre being used for evangelism? I mean, real evangelism. The silence was deafening. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. In about 11, 1200, the mystery plays, you may have heard of these, the mystery plays. Mystery is an ancient Old English word meaning guild or craft. These were plays that the guilds, the unions, worked hand in hand with the church to create these plays. Now, two plays in particular. One was called the Ordinalia. Now, the Ordinalia took three days to stage. Okay? If you can imagine, oh, cramps, where would you imagine a great big space? Right in the center of it, they would construct a platform. This is God. This is where the angels are. Over there, there's another smaller platform. That is where the devil is. That's where all the demons are. Over here, you would have the stable. And so they tell the story of, not just Christmas, the whole story of salvation. They would get crowds of three, 4,000 people. They're looking at this. And they are looking at one thing, but at the same time, something's happening over the, the same time over here. So you look at Christ being born in the stable, and what have you got down there? You've got the demons all plotting. At the same time, you've got God here. Another stage, you have Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's on his own. But suddenly, you will see an angel trot down from the platform, run across the green space, and go and accompany the whole thing was just this extraordinary spectacle. Your eyes were going hither and yon and yon and hither. It got to the point that the playwrights, and nobody knows really who wrote these mystery plays, but they began to inject a little bit of humour. So that you have on the crucifixion scene, there Jesus is being lashed at the cross and there is God and there are the angels and they're all looking down and everybody's terribly concerned and they suddenly realise they've run out of nails. So the torturer has to sort of leave the crucifixion, runs across this plain, gets into the smithy's shop and there he meets the smithy's wife and there they have this really bawdy highly erotic and you think this is absolutely weird going on at the same time where they're talking about you know the uh the nails must be hard you know we've got to be make it smooth and gentle and all these sort of innuendos and you're looking at this and they're laughing at it and they think this is fantastic and For a 14th century playwright, that's a stroke of genius. Because suddenly, the audience 
first of all is looking at Christ crucified and thinking that's terrible dreadful but then they see comedy and they see humor and say hey that's funny <laughs> they wonderful you know wink wink nudge nudge those sort of jokes and then the penny drops I'm laughing at the very thing that my Lord died for so the mystery plays were teaching tools they weren't there to just simply all pass the time and they would happen every year these were ways in which the gospel could be taught the second play is called the second shepherd's play world famous because most of the shepherds play there are three shepherds well in this one there's a fourth one so the three shepherds they're out on the fields and again don't forget you've got thousands of people they're watching this play and three shepherds come in the angel comes in and says this is what's happening they say oh this is fantastic and they walk across to the stable and they suddenly realize they bump rather into a guy called mac now mac's a sheep stealer and he's stolen one of their sheep they don't know it all right so he takes his stolen sheep back to his wife, Jill. Now, Jill has just given birth to a child. So what they do is they move the child out of the cradle into a box and they put the sheep in the cradle. So the three shepherds come along and they want to worship. And they worship the lamb. You got it? They worship the lamb. At a distance, and Mac is sort of saying, no, I haven't seen your sheep. Oh, the child, yes, I'm t you know, terribly sorry. No, you can't have a look at it. Difficult birth and all this and all that. <laughs> so they go away, and they're halfway down the hill. They suddenly say, hold on, we didn't bring a gift. We have to bring a gift to this child. So they come back. They've got a few little pennies. They lay it there, and one of the shepherds looks and says, hold on. You know, basically, how come your child's got a great big snout? and four black feet they're all you know shoving out on either side of the cradle now to 21st century ears that probably sounds pretty daft to 14th century people that was revolutionary because suddenly again the lamb is a figure of fun comedy they're there to worship the Lamb. And the Lamb, of course, is the Lamb of God. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I wish playwrights nowadays could be that inventive. But they're not. <coughs> then what happened was very sad because more and more playwrights began to inject not just humour, but they began to water down the gospel aspects of these plays. So the, what you would have is that the guilds, the unions, would then take over. So when it came to the crucifixion, the Guild of Nailmakers were responsible for putting on the crucifixion. For the Last Supper, that would be done by the Guild of Bakers. And so it went, and the church looked at what was happening and thought, we're out of here. And they literally retreated, and they just washed their hands and said, no more. That's it. Ha! Ah, 
If only they hadn't. But they did. Two of the most initially popular figures, popular in terms of being hated the most, were Pontius Pilate and Judas Iscariot. In the initial mystery plays, these were really tragic, tragic figures, flawed human beings. But when the church retreated and the guilds took over, they began to grow into more comic figures. So in the end, they were laughing at them. And nowadays, we all know them as Punch and Judy. Oh. Ha, indeed. That was an aha moment for me as I'm going through this. I'm thinking, you're kidding. No, it was. Fourth development of theatre was, well, I can say it in one word, Shakespeare. There's nobody anywhere near Shakespeare who's been able to sort of plumb the depths of what it really means to be human. If you read the canon of Shakespeare, it is just shot through with references to scripture, the gospel story. And there is with each play structure what is known as the Shakespearean world order. In the Elizabethan times, there were so many conflicting concerns, peace was not very tangible. So what Shakespeare says, okay, fine, here we have God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Angels, da-da, da-da. Then you have mankind. King, really important. Queen, not quite equal, but a bit below. Prince, so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Then you have laborers, all the way down to serfs. Everybody knew their position. Democracy, not quite. But they knew where they stood. And if you study Shakespeare's plays, all of his plays will take that order and crack it open. Macbeth murders a king. Now, if you were at the Globe Theatre in London, you saw that, you'd go, Ugh! because the order has been shattered. And the more that the play revealed just how shattered it, it would be. So again, the audience is there and hoping and probably praying, will it all turn out okay? Sometimes in his plays it did, sometimes it didn't. There's a famous speech in Shakespeare's Time and of Athens where his final phrase is, and let all hell be loose. And I've often thought of what it must have been like standing in the audience and hearing that, hearing this character evoking hell to come into their lives, into reality shaping, smashing, destroying everything. Not very nice. Fourth development. No, that was the fourth. The fifth. The rise of Puritanism, which sadly led to the eventual closure of all the theatres in England. Though for some unknown reason, opera was spared. Um, Puritanism, people have a lot of bad things to say about it because... Under their influence, theatres were closed. And yet you have a man like Oliver Cromwell, who basically says to his portrait artist, paint me warts and all. So there was that sort of dichotomy between we don't like the theatre because of what it says and what it does, but at the same time, be real. 
don't try and hide anything. Mm. More could be said. I've got time. After that came Restoration Comedy. Pardon me. Now, Restoration Comedy was all terribly witty and terribly wonderful, and everyone wore wonderful wigs. And they spoke in this fantastic language. Very cutting. Very, once you get underneath it, very nasty. But it was also terribly funny. <laughs> After that, that goes on for about 200 years. Of course, there were a lot of plays and a lot of theatre before then. As I said, we're going on a whistle-stop tour. In 1890, a Norwegian called Henrik Ibsen shattered the whole idea of what theatre was about because he said, theatre has to tell the truth. His first play, Enemy of the People, dealt with government corruption. And I mean, in a very, very self-revealing way. Hedda Gabler, story about a woman on the verge of self-destruction. Or his, probably his best-known play, A Doll's House, dealing with the limitations and harsh expectations of women at the time. Now, before Ibsen, yes, there was George Bernard Shaw. And Shaw wrote St. Joan. Shaw wrote Mrs. Warren's Profession. Mrs. Warren's Profession was the fact that she was a madam. And her daughter went to a private school because her mum was a prostitute. But the way that it is staged, it's all, you're a couple of steps back. Again, it's all terribly witty. Lots of puns, lots of wordplay. Ibsen just goes straight for it and just simply says, no, if you're going to tell the truth, tell the truth. And then in the 1950s, and again, this is why, as I said at the very beginning, I'm going to talk about UK. A man called John Osborne wrote a play called Look Back in Anger. And the era of the angry young man was born. Osborne shattered everything to do with theatre. The beginning of Act 2 was exactly the same as the beginning of Act 1. And in Act 2, Jimmy Porter was having a murderous conversation with his wife, as exactly had happened in Act 1. Nothing had changed. And what he's basically saying is, Nothing does change. Whereas beforehand, Shaw would be all witty and funny and come to a nice conclusion. Osborne says, no, not at all. It's not nice. He was operating particularly against the class system in England, which I think you may have heard something about. There was another playwright called Arnold, Arnold Wesker who invented the term kitchen sink drama. So suddenly we're away from the court, we're away from out there, we're here, we're here in the kitchen, getting dirty, having a look at real people and seeing what makes them tick. Fabulous. Brilliant. Harold Pinter is another playwright. He formulated what was later known as the theatre of unease. If ever you read Pinter or go and see one of his plays, the script 
is deceptively simple. And you think, huh? And every so often there is silence, says something. Pause, something. You think, what the heck is going on here? And then you realize what he's doing is these people, it's not that they don't want to communicate. They haven't got a clue how to do it. I mean, to really talk one to another. Honesty, self-revelation doesn't exist in any of Pinter's plays. But the giant among these playwrights was one whose, well, he didn't formulate the phrase theatre of the, of the absurd. His name, Samuel Beckett. His play, Waiting for Godot. Who here has read Waiting for Godot, seen Waiting for Godot? One. Oh, that's sad. Please see it. Uh, a great friend of ours, Murray Watts, um, says Godot should always be seen and not read. It's very difficult to read. You don't quite get the impact. See it, and you're just sort of blown, blown away. Basically, the theme of Waiting for God over two tramps waiting by a roadside. Full stop. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, they talk. They try and laugh. They try and communicate. They meet some characters, they haven't got a clue who they are or what they're doing. And it's on a bare, blank landscape. In Act Two, there's actually a tree, which is nice. That's the only difference. There's no colour, there's no fragrance, there's no nothing. And what Beckett has done, and I read his biography, and he's absolutely, I mean, the man is a genius. And I do him a dreadful disservice to dismiss him in two minutes. What he has done is that he has simplified everything. He stripped everything away to the absolute bare bones. And it's not everybody says, oh, waiting for God, it was a dreadfully depressive play. No, I don't think so. He calls it a tragic comedy, and you think, well, wow. Waiting by a roadside, waiting for somebody called Godot who never bothers to turn up. And every time he's about to turn up, a little boy comes on stage and says, Sorry, uh, Mr. Godot can't come today, but he's definitely coming tomorrow. And of course, everybody thinks, Oh, he's talking about God. No, he's not. No, he's not. I don't think so. Beckett wisely refuses to say anything about the play. He basically says, What's it for you? What's it for you? What's it for you? It'll be very different. And all his plays, one of his most infamous plays is called Breath. All right. The curtains are drawn. The curtains part. The stage is crammed full of chairs. Higgledy-piggledy. It's dark. And you hear somebody breathe curtains drawn. That's the end of the play. What does the picture say to you? What does the sound say to you? The, the playwright is now saying, I trust you enough because you're here for you to make of it what you want to. I am going to provide the vehicle. What is your heart and spirit going to? How's it going to respond? What's it going to say? 
Theatre of the Absurd. Pirandello's Six Characters in Search of an Author. Wonderful. Really funny play. Strange play. Good play. Six characters. They have no names. They all come on stage and they demand an identity. You know, and you think, okay, yeah, I think I can understand that. Yeah. As if I'm not made in the image of God, who the heck am I? Who am I? Do I have a name? What is the name? What is makes me me? I don't know. Or there's Ionesco's play, The Rhinoceros. A man living his life in the spite of the fact that everybody around him is turning into a rhinoceros. And you think, okay. <laughs> it's called the theatre of the absurd. But of course, absurdity ironically implies a crisis of post-Christian identity. How can the universe be called absurd unless by reference to some objective meaning? Well, all this, there has been no significant Christian response. Yes, T.S. Eliot wrote Murder in the Cathedral. Very beautiful, again, a very formal play written in verse about the murder of Thomas a Becket in Canterbury Cathedral. It's wonderful. It's touching. But it didn't go anywhere. Christopher Fry and his sleep of prisoners, same thing. Successful on the West End, but no progression. And then we come to the 70s. Now, there used to be an Anglican evangelist called David Watson. I hope you've got his books here. Read them, read them, read them. They're wonderful. David Watson understood what the monks had done in Iona and Lindisfarne. And he met our friend Murray Watts, who I've already mentioned. Murray said to him, look, let's intersperse your talks. And David was an evangelist, he said, with sketches. Okay? Short, four, five-minute sketches. So, David Watson would begin his talk, and he'd suddenly say, and this is what I mean. And whereupon they would come into the parable of the good punk rocker. Or something like that. And it would go one to two to two to two to two. And they would both feed off each other. You saw what was being said. You saw it acted out. And suddenly, bang, everybody thought, hey, maybe we could use this in drama. So other people began to do the same thing. So Riding Lights, Riding Lights Theatre Company was born. And before that was Upstream and my dear beloved wife Joy, appeared in one of their plays. A superb Christmas. It was called The Tree That Woke Up. And Joy played Mary. Yeah. <laughs> um, another group called Footprints. And I can remember um, having come to the Lord of, at Labrie in 1975. We go around conferences. And you would look for... Who's going to do some drama? Yeah, who's going to do it? And everybody was expecting it because the wheel had been set in motion. And the trouble was the wheel had been set in motion and the church didn't pick it up. I wouldn't say everything died. Now Riding Lights have a theatre in York. Footprints 
No. Drama in the UK? No. So that's a sort of sad state at the moment. So before I go on to anything else, any questions? <laughs> right, right. Yes. I, I do have a question. <laughs> it's cu it's cutting back to Shakespeare a bit, but yes. um, just like wondering with the conclusion, um, people are looking for this conclusion. Would the conclusion be to restore order? Because I know in some plays there's kind of like this movement to like uh, a la like Midsummer Night's Dream or something like this kind of um, magical other realm or like the forest. You know, yep. um, is this this thing outside of order? But like, what is that sort of place through disorder within the within the? Hierarchy? It's all in the order. It's all in the order. There's Oberon, big cheese, <laughs> you know. And uh, at the end of it, everything is restored. Love is restored. They fall in love with the right people, not just asses. And everybody, everything is restored. But that doesn't happen in every play. I mean, look at Hamlet. I mean, there's a bloodbath on stage, and everybody's dead. And I think one of the g parts of the massive genius of Shakespeare is to say, this would be the goal, but life isn't neat. So if it doesn't, it doesn't. So somebody's cold. Would you like a blanket? No, I can't. I'm Are you sure? I need socks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Near my birthday. Yeah. What about, uh, you know, you were talking about of theater and it seemed that when theater was in the fields people didn't have TVs mm -hmm. phones, film and so it seems that people are still looking for stories but it seems that they're looking more for film than they are for uh, theater so um, what place do you see for theater now in where have we come to because you're talking about we, we don't see much Christian theater, but I would say, well, people don't see much theater. Correct. So. Correct. Um, yeah, let's, let's do a poll. Um, who here has seen a live theater in the last six months? Thank you. Five months? Four months? <laughs> and yet there is a plethora of drama outside there. A plethora of it. Bluebridge just did Chekhov's farces. Fabulous. Fabulous. Yeah, I mean, they really knew how to play Chekhov. The Belfry, sometimes, in my opinion, has some really outstanding productions. Go. Go. Go and be grabbed. And come out. If you just say, well, no, I didn't enjoy that. Fabulous. You have just seen live theatre. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Movies are taking over. And they're taking over because they can get more financial return. There are more means for movies to be screened. So much it's called the internet. <laughs> you can't do that in the live theatre, though in fact you can. If you go to a local cinema, look at where um, the National Theatre or the Royal Shakespeare Company from England, they have live performances beamed in at ridiculous prices. Eight bucks, nine bucks to see a West End show 
up close, brilliant. Or you can go and see opera, whatever. I beg of you, go. Go. Who was the first person to receive God's Spirit? The artist. The artist. Not the accountant, not the scientist, <laughs> not the theologian. It was an artist because God decided, God the Creator decided to say to human beings, what I do, I want you to do. But somehow, we all sit back and just say, well, I don't want to do that. Do you know, you talked about the, the Greek bit yeah. and the catharsis. And I was thinking, thought immediately, I mean, that's exactly what the church is supposed to do, isn't it? Thank you. To grab the heart of people. And, you know, good sermons should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. But it doesn't happen very often. No. No, it doesn't. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I should have said at the very beginning, but thank you for saying it. Now, what I discovered through this and looking at the theatre was just how applicable it is to the situation within the church. Your church, my church, the church, big T, big Z. Like catharsis. Like, are we prepared for a day of sex machina to come into our church? I don't think so. I'm not. What I'd like to do now is to look at the ma some of the major influences in the theatre. And again, to underline, if you can think of it as well, what they're doing as applying to the life, the structure, yeah, the life of the church. First one is a guy called Stanislavski. Yeah, he was a Russian. Stanislavski was a theatre director in Moscow. And a great friend of his called Maxim Gorky had just written a play called The Hidden Depths. Now, The Hidden Depths took place in basically a slum. Now, slums in Russia before the revolution were even worse than they were after the revolution. Stanislavski looked at his actors and he thought, you can't do it. You know, it's not going to work. We are going to go into a slum. Now, I know that sounds duh, so obvious. But in those days, it wasn't. If you wanted to create a character, you would sort of, you wouldn't even look at yourself in the mirror. You would sort of read the words, create the character, and just let it come alive. Stanislavski said, no, you go and look at people. What makes them them? What makes you as an actor become like them? That was revolutionary. So that when the team came back from the depths, they knew exactly how these people, well, not exactly. They knew, had a clearer picture of how somebody living in a slum looked, smelt, spoke, swore, drank, and they could then bring it onto stage. That was revolutionary. <clears throat> The second one is Lee Strasberg. Now, Lee Strasberg invented method acting. Lee Strasberg said, no, 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 no. You don't look out. You look in. You look into yourself to discover the similarities between yourself. And 
forgive me for being uh, Liz for saying at the very beginning Lady Macbeth <laughs> everybody is capable of playing Lady Macbeth there is something about every character as Jung has said that has ever or will ever be created that there is within us and we can draw on are you a murderer? Mm -hmm. are you capable of it? Mm -hmm. Strasbourg said you have to look into yourself and be honest with yourself when did that last happen in your church? see the parallels? It was a German called Bertolt Brecht, a very political genius of drama. He formulated what he called the theatre of alienation. Now, if this is a theatre right here and now, the action would be going on and everybody would be sort of relaxing into, oh yeah, we know what's going to happen here. And Brecht would suddenly do something and he'd sing a song. Or you'd have a dance, like this, and everyone's going, what the heck is going on? Did I miss something? And what Brecht is doing is saying, don't get comfortable. What I am producing for you is political theatre. So that when you leave the theatre, I want you changed. He didn't say into what, but I want you changed. And so he would alienate everybody in the audience. And that's another thing, I mean, you could... Somebody should give a great big talk on the role of the audience in theatre. Fascinating. Fascinating. If you think Brecht was bad. <laughs> Antoninato was a Frenchman who wasn't concerned with script. He wasn't concerned with the audience. What he wanted was the whole spectacle. So he would use sound, lighting, staging, everything... Basically, to hit his audience over the head and just say, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And again, he wanted to transform them into something new. Again, like Brecht, didn't say what, but just transform them into something new. And then you have Peter Brook. I'd like to read something, again, from his book, The Empty Space. We hear that trumpets destroyed the walls of Jericho. We recognize that a magical thing called music can come from men in white ties and tails, blowing, waving, thumping and scraping away. Despite the absurd means that produce it, through the concrete in music, we recognize the abstract. We understand that ordinary men and their clumsy instruments are transformed by an art of possession. We may make a personality cult of the conductor, but we are aware that he's not really making the music. It is making him. If he's relaxed, open and attuned, then the invisible will take possession of him, and through him it will reach us. Brooks says theatre is to make the invisible visible. Doesn't that apply to church? <laughs> to make the invisible visible. We want to see Jesus. They said, coming to Andrew, we want to see Jesus. The invisible 
becomes visible. Brooks says not through its magic is too strong a word. Spiritual is a really strong word, though he is a deeply spiritual man. His aim is what he calls holy theatre. Holy theatre is just that. Holy theatre is where you come with no expectations. If this is a theatre, as you walk through, you would have put all your expectations, forgive me, that was my prayer at the beginning, outside. You come in empty. You come in with no preconceptions, no, so, oh God, who is this English guy I've got to speak to? Or, I'm really interested, I hope he's going to talk about this or that or the other. That's what he calls dead theatre. Dead theatre meaning that you cannot ideally bring all your baggage into a theatre. You have to leave it outside and allow the moment, allow the invisible to become visible through the drama. So that you don't come in your top hat and tail and say, oh, I wonder if so-and-so is going to be here. Oh, look at that dress. <laughs> Not so nice, is it? You know, All that goes by the by. But he's not so silly, and this is the marvellous thing I love about Brooks, to reproduce holy theatre. Every performance must be different. Every performance by the actors, every performance, presence, by the audience must be different. Again, if not, it just becomes dead. When Joy and I were acting... I'm sure you felt that some nights you just gave, you know, for some unknown reason, you just gave just a mesmeric performance. I can remember doing it once. (laughs) And I tried to remember it. And the following evening, tried to repeat it. And it bombed. That's dead theatre. I didn't empty myself. Again, the parallel of the church. When you come to church, are we all emptying ourselves? expecting the invisible to be made visible. Or do we come with, well, you better turn up, God, you know, I mean, there's coffee in half an hour. (laughs) I'm being facetious, but I think you get what he's trying to say. And the last one is a Brazilian MP called Augusto Boal. And Boal, what he did was, do you know him? You're Brazilian. Oh, I vouch it. Well done. You in the land of Augusto Boal. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> he was the mayor, and I can't remember the name of the city he was the mayor. Anyway, he was doing theatre. And he realised he was doing street theatre. It was what they call agitprop, which is agitation and propaganda. I mean, really political street-level theatre. In your face. And... He did this piece, and a woman came up to him at the end of it, and she said, Augusto, that was rubbish. Because your characters, they came to this position, and they went that way. Nobody in this situation would go that way. They'd go that way. Why? So she explained. If you go to a theatre of the oppressed performance, you will have a short play, and it lasts... 15-20 minutes but then what happens is what they call the joker 
who is the sort of middleman between the audience and the performers, says, okay, now, how would you like to see it end? Is that a good ending for the play? And you may say, no, it's not. Okay, come on down. So you would come down and you would then become part of the play with your idea. You might say, well, that's all very well and good, but I want to go that way. Terrific. You come in. So suddenly the spectator, as he calls them, becomes the spectator. There is no such thing as somebody just simply sitting back on their duff and doing nothing. Boal says, get involved. I'm not going to teach you how to do anything. This is your situation politically. You know what is best. But I'm going to create the situation whereby you can learn, you can see, and you can change. They used to do theatre on the subway. And you'd have male, female. And there'd be a couple of male actors. So you had four in this packed subway. Male comes on to the female in a really nasty, aggressive way. I mean, really nasty. Nobody's saying a thing. Nothing. So the other two actors start moving amongst the rest of the subway and say, what do you think of that? Isn't that bad? Are we going to do anything? Can we do anything? So I don't know. I don't know. You've got theatre. That is theatre. And again, Boal is not teaching He's not showing the way. He's saying, you've got options. You've got choices. Use them. Discover them. You've got ways to go to the theatre. Do it. <clears throat> okay, so now we come to the Christian response. Sorry, I'm way over time. Forgive me. What is Christian drama? What makes it Christian? Does it exist? Now these are things for you to think about, certainly pray about, discuss. When Joy and I were in Toronto, I don't know if the magazine is still going Faith Today. Still going? No. Okay. Oh, it is still going. Okay. In 1991, I think it was, they had a whole issue devoted to the arts. And it featured Joy and myself and our little drama group, which we were doing, working in Toronto, and they featured painters and potters, and the artists of all shapes and sizes. I thought it was good, not because I was in it or anything like that, but I thought, yeah, it's good that the arts are pleasing. We had a friend who was on the editorial staff. She said they received more cancelled subscriptions, they received more hate mail, they receive more angry letters. How dare you waste the print on such trivia and anyway dramas of the devil. And there really seems to be an ignorance and unwillingness of the church to embrace the all-encompassing presence and grace of God. So sad. Third response. Should Jesus be portrayed on stage? Again, I, there are no do's or don'ts. 
Is laughter an appropriate vehicle for drama, particularly in church? When did you last, I mean, have a good belly laugh in church? I mean, a rip-roaring snorter. <laughs> and yet, laughter is so much part of God's world. So much part of it. And yet we don't. If we proclaim Jesus is Lord, why do we segment off those areas of life we fear or we don't understand? Again, I'm very thankful for Clark and Julia for asking me to do this because in the preparation of this, I suddenly realized Christians are really frightened of reality. Really frightened of honesty and being broken and talking about it and saying, yeah, but I'm forgiven. The grace of God. This is wonderful. Ah, you know, ah, I know who I am. I'm a sinner. I mean, a capital S-R-N. But the grace of God is so much bigger than my sin. Wow! But we don't talk about it. And particularly in, on the stage. And Lastly, on this little section, how do we respond to those who say dramas of the devil? And now then you have the challenges facing the Christian actor. The Christian regards the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, so what are the implications of this? Well, firstly, there are no do's or don'ts, hence those questions I just posed. I'm not going to tell you what to do. That's for you. There's no Ten Commandments of the theatre. This is antithetical not only to theatre itself, but also to the way God guides through his spirit. Encouraging us to make mature decisions for ourselves. Desmond Tutu famously said, You're a child of God. Start behaving like one. Sonship also involves freedom and responsibility. Every Christian actor will approach the work with the utmost professionalism, that God will receive the glory in the excellence of the artistry. There's an apocryphal story of the English poet laureate John Betjeman, very devout Christian, and somebody sent him a poem. He said, Dear Mr. Betjeman, God gave me this poem. So John Betjeman reads this doggerel and just sort of says, Well, the Lord giveth, he drops it in the waste paper basket and the Lord taketh away <laughs> blessed be the name of the Lord <laughs> so any artist who proclaims to be a Christian you've got to work hard I, got to, I forgot this book came out in 86 I forgot that they talked about Laurence Olivier uh, reckoned to be the world's greatest stage actor when he learned his lines he didn't just learn the lines, the commas, the dashes. He studied where his tongue was, where his jaw was. The reason being so that when he came to perform, his mind could think through the words without wondering, how am I going to say this or whatever? So that he could be absolutely open to new ideas. And it reminded me of the psalmist who says, meditate on the word of God and the the word meditate means to chew like a cow chews the cud. You ever seen a cow chew the cud? For hours. 
getting everything from it. And the psalmist says, do likewise. Read the word of God. Read it and live. Thirdly, challenge. It's rather a precarious way of life. In my time, there were 500 actors for one job. <laughs> Not good odds. The situation has only become more acute. I read somewhere that most actors will only work between two and three weeks per year. The actor will need church support. If you have a member in your congregation who says, I feel called to be an actor, don't just, don't just say, oh yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, all the best. Bye-bye. Pray with them. Encourage them. See if that is the path for their life. Don't be the Holy Spirit, but support them. Because to enter into such a world is not easy. I personally believe the church needs to view every single artist as missionaries venturing into the world as they try and portray beauty, grace, and the love of God. Fourth challenge, the Me Too, Time's Up movement, so relevant today as Mr. Weinstein was indicted for rape. These movements have exposed the dark underbelly of the entertainment world. How is the actor to prepare to enter such a milieu? The presence of the Holy Spirit and the full armor of God are essential, as well as, as I said, the body, the support of the body of Christ. Many plays and roles are being created which focus on the dark and malevolent areas of life. How is the actor to regard this when offered a part in, say, a horror movie? He hasn't worked in years and suddenly he's got a part in a really nasty movie. It's a good role. Money's good. What does he or she do? Or what happens when the actor is asked to portray emotional or sexual abuse? These are real problems for real people and real actors struggle with it so to conclude you're probably going to a few now it's brownie time in the western theatre the theatre building itself is never allowed to go completely dark a light is left burning through the night when the actors and the crew leave the building someone turns on the ghost Often this is a bare bulb on a plain stand that can easily be rolled onto the stage. Oh, there are lots of explanations for this. Safety precautions, tradition, superstition. But turning on the ghost light is a way of asking for the source of inspiration to never leave the theatre. Some churches, again, I'm Anglican, do something similar with the church going completely dark only at the end of Maundy Thursday. So in the church or in the theatre, we're all of us doing the same. We're simply turning on the ghost light, asking, praying and hoping for the spirit to remain and to move again in our midst. Thank you for your patience. that you um, tied the uh, how how the theater informs the church and the church can inform the theater yeah. uh, 
one thing uh, that I kept coming back to was the performative, um, as, mm -hmm. a, as a as a as a almost as a heuristic, as a, as a way of teaching, a mm -hmm. way of grabbing the catharsis. Mm -hmm. uh, in churches, it's become more almost a presentation, like a, a treatise, using logic, but the performative is missing. Mm -hmm. You might get it, you know, a lot of people are looking for the performative through liturgy, yes. through you know, uh, incense, or mm -hmm. something like that, maybe lights in a 40-piece orchestra on the, on the stage, uh, a flat stage, not one that's Of course, yeah. Right. <laughs> but how might, what does the performative bring? Like, how does it capture in a way that, what, what is lost with the performative in terms of how the church might be performative and what might the church gain by the performative and how might they do it? And also, uh, mm. what are we missing by not seeing the performative in theater if we're not going to theater? So you see... Yeah, yes. Well, um, okay, let's deal with the first one um, as regards the church. I just suddenly remembered something. We were in a church in Mississauga, and we'd done a whole series of sketches, and in between them we talked about things. And there was a woman sitting there, and she was weeping with laughter. <laughs> with laughter, not, oh my goodness, what happened. It was, it was laughter. And at the end of it, somebody came, stood up as we were about to leave the stage, and she said, oh, can you give us another one? And I suddenly realized the hole that we were digging ourselves into. The performative not only just becomes a gimmick, it becomes a drug to actually anesthetize you from actually doing something yourself. What does the church miss? Oh boy, don't get me started. It misses, I'll use the word, magic. It misses mystery, and not the ancient English word. The real mystery. I mean, I love what Brooks says, that church must be empty. That when you come into the church, you do not drag in your own expectations. You do not drag in your own demands. But by coming into, I mean, in many ways, Quakers do a fantastic job. It's all quiet and silence. You sit down and you wait. For what? Don't know. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> you don't know. Go to an Anglican church, you know darn well what's going to happen in four pages' time. <laughs> That is not, that is what Brooke would call dead theatre. Just dead theatre because everybody comes with expectations. And what he's saying is that, and what I believe is that when you come to church, there must be no expectations at all. And I think there has to be found in the performing, whether it be through drama, whether it be through crumbs, the whole realm of the arts in the middle of a service. Um, where is he? 
Peter Brook talks about Coventry Cathedral, shows how old this book is. Coventry Cathedral was opened in me, 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 1966. It was completely destroyed by the Germans in 1942. It took all that time for it to be built. Anyway, what he basically said was, well, you're doing it the wrong way around. You've built this building, and now you're saying, oh, let's bring in mystery. Let's bring in this and bring in that. And he said, you should have started with that to begin with and then seen what transpired. The trouble is that the church is caught in history. It's caught in so many things. It saddens the guts out of me. It really does. But there are times when I can go to church and I can get excited. I think ah, the church. Where do I begin? I would. Tell us when you get excited. <laughs> when do I get excited? I get excited when people are when people are honest, when mistakes are made, when you know, what do they call it? Messy church. When you see human beings in all their beauty, in other words, in all their detritus and all their nastiness, but all their grace and all their beauty and all their possibility and potential, as opposed to, you know, that sort of good old stiff British upper lip that sort of says, you know, everything is well with the world. No, it's not well with the world. And it's not even well with my world inside, if I'm honest, in anybody's. So, I think that when the church is able to sort of in just embrace, I mean, for me, as an artist, to embrace all the arts, to use, to have the arts used in a much more creative way, to breathe life, breathe so much life into it. Do you think the liturgy aids or hinders in the creative expression of the people? Oh, it can really help sometimes. It can really help. But the way that it is presented, I mean, what is more magic when somebody holds up the host and says, this is the body of Christ? Wow. Silence. This is the body of Christ. You know, but if not, you then have to sort of turn... The book, turn the book, you know, from page 185 to page 186 and wait for your, <laughs> and wait for your, I'm being facetious, but that's the reality. The, I don't know, do we allow the Holy Spirit to come into worship? Do we allow the Holy Spirit to come into me? Not really, if I'm honest. I love it, but, but do we allow ourselves do we allow ourselves to be naked and vulnerable, yeah, as we all are before God? Do you think the consistency of the liturgy enables like a dead church and a dead theater? It doesn't help. It doesn't help. But it depends how it's done. I mean, the wording of... I'm, I'm Anglican. The Anglican, some of the Anglican words are just magnificent but they're wasted 
a sort of goal. Let's get through this. No. Um, I don't know what it's going to take. It's going to take God. Did, did, did you think the Bishop of Chicago brought some life and energy into... Uh, Good point, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that he was had awesome. A, that was awesome. Wasn't he wonderful? It was just... Maybe it was, what, was it seven minutes long? It was seven supposed min- to be seven. Oh, is it seven? Okay, he went, went to twelve. To Thirteen. And Thirteen. They all were good man. The other way. He should have gone to thirty-three. <laughs> he was fantastic because he suddenly communicated. Wow, there's life. Jesus is about life. <laughs> Hold on, the Bible. This is about life, folks. Not death. It's about everything that we all seek. Yeah, I think he was absolutely terrific. Yeah. But, again, the whole of the liturgy, uh, in, I don't know, in whatever denomination you're in, sometimes militates against that sort of freedom. Um, um, well, I'm just interested, because in talking about the liturgy, like you're saying these words that are already written for you, but when you're acting, you're also, like, performing a role most of the time where you already have the script so how how does that can like because it seems like you're saying you can still be honest in the part that you have where it's already scripted for you no sorry we're talking about um a a script as an actor yeah as an actor yes okay so so what does that honesty look like like how would that be different in a in a play if you already have a part written for you being honest because you're not like playing yourself um, and then reading liturgy and also being honest. Um, like, are the two related in some way? Or? Hmm. That's a very, very fine question. I think that, I mean, as a believer, all of us are called to be honest. As an actor, you can only be, I was going to say, honest so far, because I'm still Nick. I'm not Macbeth. I don't want to murder people. But as a, no, that's not true, sometimes it is. <laughs> um, but as an actor, as an actor, um, I must try and develop the skin of every character that I go into. That means spending time. That means looking into myself. Um, it was Lee Strasberg who said that the, the essence of every character that has ever or will ever be written is within oneself. And you have to look for it. And that takes time and courage. And then you build on that. And so you create the character. But it's creating a character. It's not you. But then when you come to the liturgy, you're naked. You're naked before God. And God loves you. You know, you don't have to put on a character. You're just yourself. That's what I believe God demands, demands, forgive me, asks of each one of us. Be your Self. Oh, don't know who you are? Well, welcome to life. You and I are going to work this out together. <coughs> Says God to you and you to God. Fabulous. So it's, it's not easy 
Does that answer give? So you're saying that, like with the liturgy, we have to be careful not to let that sort of become something that becomes performative, yes. rather than really. Bring, oh yeah, Abs- absolutely. Up. How do we breathe? How do we allow the Holy Spirit to breathe life into liturgy? Most people, um, if you say the word liturgy, just think boring. <laughs> and yes, sometimes it can be. Sometimes it can blow your socks off. Unexpectedly. We were in a church in Salisbury. And this was um, a sort of Anglo-Catholic church. Sorry, this is Salisbury, England, in Wiltshire. And we were going through the service. And suddenly this guy stands up behind and he suddenly says, Praise God! Now this is not a Pentecostal church. It's <laughs> Anglican! So... He's suddenly saying, praise God. And everyone's going, what's going on here? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. And the minister is sort of looking at him and just sort of smiling and nodding and just carries on. <laughs> this man was convicted by the Holy Spirit of God. And the minister was wise enough not to interrupt. Just let it be to be your relationship with your creator, with God in Christ. Just let it be. That was drama. Wonderful. Boom. In a good old Anglican liturgy. There's life yet, Lord, if you do it in the Anglican liturgy. Hey, it can happen anyway. But it did. And it did. Nick, there's this question. I don't know whether I heard it right, but isn't it true that as actors we have a responsibility to the writer of whatever we're acting so we find the truth of what that person is portraying and hopefully there's part of ourselves that we can bring to bear on that that is true very truthful same way in liturgy we are finding we are upholding the truth of god um i I mean i don't know whether that's in any way an answer that helps helps, thank you yeah. I, I'm just going to comment on an experience I had recently when I was in Australia where I chose to go to a Hillsong church in the morning and then a very high Anglican church in the evening and it, I found that the, I, mean, I enjoy Hillsong music I enjoy worship um, but I found it quite chaotic the service and it felt like more of a performance whereas the it was just after Easter and because of where Easter landed this year they did the Annunciation of Mary, they put mm-hmm. it to after Easter because of the way the Sundays landed. And so the evening service was the liturgical service for the Annunciation. And it was beautiful. It was, and it enabled me to engage more the liturgy in in worship. Um, and not, I mean, I, I'm not in a liturgical church, so I had to have a little card to help me follow along. But the music and being able to focus on the Annunciation because of the way it was laid out enabled me to engage and mm-hmm. express more worship than sort of, it, it felt more performative because we had this amazing choir that was doing some beautiful classical music, etc. Then the morning, which even though it was freer perhaps in worship, it still felt like more of a performance mm-hmm. than evening. So it's just this sort of interesting way and when you're talking about um, expressing the truth of uh, God or there are I think 
ways to do that through liturgy or ways that liturgy helps you engage with it because it is sort of set there but then it can be expressed through it differently. Thank you. Yeah. Hmm. Anybody else? I have a question, but I'm not sure if this is a question that could be answered <coughs> in this context. Um, do you have any thoughts on how we should engage children in the church then? If like the theater is meant to evoke like emotion, to, like evoke a response, and then like the liturgy can also do the same, but for a lot of times like children, it's more complicated. So, is there a correct way or like different applicable ways in which to engage children in the church and like presenting the gospel? I don't know. This is a really complicated question. <laughs> I haven't got a clue, so I'm not going to say. <laughs> Seriously, forgive me. Um, I haven't got a clue. I haven't got a clue. I really appreciate the question. Um, what happened when our kids grow up? Not much. Not much, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I don't want to answer that. <laughs> I've seen two good examples of how theatre and children have functioned very well in church. One, uh, some churches are doing godly play. I mean, it is figures and it's not people, but it's the person who's presenting the godly play. And if they are really intentional, they actually uh, create the scenarios through wooden blocks. But the, and the landscape is empty, <laughs> if you've ever seen it. But uh, it's kind of like felt and wood blocks, but it begins empty. And they say, there was a river. And upon this river was a man walking. And, and it just slowly, the empty space builds into this story and children are just captivated and I have to say I'm captivated when I hear it and I went to a church that used godly play often and I found them more helpful than the sermons uh, so I found I think godly play is when someone knows and are, is prepared uh, the second is at a church that we went to in Vancouver did something called Eastside Story Guild and it is uh, two people that would choreograph you know create the setting and it would be a large story from the bible the life of david the life of moses and it had all of the the body parts b-a-w-d-y um it would have the glorious parts and it was just amazing and and often it would spill out from the stage and it would encompass the whole for example, when um, they were parting through the river, um, or no, maybe it was the flood, the water covered the congregation, and everyone was covered as these people were, you know, secure, and then, of course, they were brought into to rescue, and uh, I found that that was, the children were putting on the play, mm -hmm. they had learned the story with great depth and great profundity and extended it to the congregation. And they did that in, instead of the sermon. Hmm. And I found that that was really excellent as well. Thank you. Just to explain. Yeah. Back to me. <laughs> I just had a question. <laughs> Do you know where, the, where the, the quote came from? All the world's a stage. What was the history of Jacques. That's right. And who? Jacques and, and as you like. As you like. Shakespeare. Okay. And men and women merely play. And yeah, that's right. Yeah. My 
mother had that at her funeral, didn't she? That's right, yes. yes. <laughs> it's a very cynical yeah. piece, actually. Hmm. Wait, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> sans eyes, sans teeth, sans everything. Yes. Yeah. Is Pacific Theatre, do they do anything good in Vancouver? Mm. Do you know them? Ron Reed, by all accounts, yes, yeah. yes. Um, I mean, they're very. I think they're very brave um, because of what they do, how long they've been doing it for, and they do it. Um, I, we've never seen anything in the Pacific Theatre. Are played there? Did we see that there? Okay. It's not easy going, but he does it, mm -hmm. and he succeeds. I'm surprised it's still around. Oh yeah, he's still around, yeah. most definitely. Yeah. 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 Okay. So. Okay, sir, Liz. <laughs> I have like a list of questions, so I gotta choose, pick and choose. I can talk to you. Um, well, I was wondering if uh, your experience as an actor, if it gives, if it has helped to give you empathy for other people just in that, that you're like inhabiting these different roles and whether it also could help people to be, be more empathetic when they when they go to live theater like is there a difference than watching a movie like we we're talking about that earlier what are I mean that's that's like one thought but maybe and maybe you could also like expand on what are the differences in going to see a live performance as opposed to something um, okay or whatever. I need your help on this one because when it comes to having um, a movie, you know, that on TV was your forte. It certainly wasn't mine. Well, it's a two-part question, I guess. First of all, like as as an actor, whether you find um, it it helps you be more empathetic to to people in general because you're inhabiting these different roles, and then also like how does encountering a live performance. Um, have a different effect on us rather than watching something recorded. <coughs> you mean actually, so you're an actor as opposed to just watching, being a spectator, a spectator. The first one is about is yeah. about actors, and the second one is about uh, audience. Yeah. Do you want to answer? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, Yes and yes, I think we'll be the answer. <laughs> um, hmm. Can I come back to that one? Mm -hmm. I'd like to think about that one as opposed to just giving you a pat answer. Mm -hmm. We'll see you next one. <laughs> <laughs> Other people can ask questions too. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I, I remember you, yes. <laughs> Let's let Melissa have her okay. face. <laughs> Um, my, my thoughts just around um, like when we are encouraged to go and see live theatre, which yeah. I would totally agree with, um, but trying to discern in, in what to attend and how to know, not that I think that there's sort of a really clear line, I'm not looking for that clear line, but just to kind of, I don't particularly want to be going to a live theatre to find that after coming out of the theatre being like, I can never get those two hours back. Um, <laughs> and, and so the other half of that for me is to, if particularly for someone who is a playwright or who is wanting to do more acting, um, and that's not necessarily
already me, but others that I know, how can we encourage them to use their time wisely in terms of how they do that so that they're not wasting their time, not even wasting, but they're not using their time on something that's just a good product as opposed to something that is inspirational, that is transformative. Um, how, do, how do we help push towards that rather than letting them be content with, that's a really good role and it pays good money. My immediate response is to say, sadly, every actor and actress must live. Mm -hmm. um, it is up to him or her as to which role they choose to make. And I suppose that's not really any different for anybody in any job, mm -hmm. yeah. really. And I think it's, no, it was Dick Kyes from Labrie in Switzerland who said, never be the Holy Spirit to anybody. And I've always remembered that because I can have a tendency to do just that, you know, well, this, this is what you're going to do, or whatever. And that's not, it's not fair, and it's not true. You, uh, people can advise you, but the ultimate decision is yours. On all, f on not just what you see or how you do it, but on life in general. Let the Lord lead you, not let somebody else. Now, so there can be people there who can support you through this, but ultimately, it's you. It's you who makes the decision. Is that fair? Yeah. And the question also about what place to us. <clears throat> I think you have to you have to be wise and do a little bit of research what are the reviews I mean you know sadly everything's up for grabs everything's everything's there everything's there but at the same time you don't want to deny the reality of life as it is I mean it's like God willing, no Christian will go and see a slasher movie. Just to say, well, I've seen a slasher movie and now I know what it's like. Ooh, no thank you. So I think you have prayer is one. And talk about it with your friends. You know, not should I see this, because there are no shoulds. You know, it's if I saw this, would it help me in my development as a Christian, as a human being? Would it give me um, hope? Would it shine light in my life? Or would it shine darkness? And, I mean, that's where the body of Christ comes in, so that you can share this with people. So please, please, pray for me. You know? So that you are given, I mean, all of us are given responsibility as to who we are and as to who we come under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, we have to sort of do a little bit of work ourselves. So, enjoy. Which theatre did you say in Victoria was particularly good? Um, We've been really impressed with Blue Bridge. Yeah. Blue Bridge. <clears throat> They're not just like always trying to... Oh, no. No, no, no. They will do classics. They're, they, only, they only put on four shows? Okay. Four shows a year. Um, the rest of the time, the theatre's dark, and all they're doing, they've got other, they've got other projects. What's your theatre? Which, where's their 
Uh, Quadra Street. Quadra and Hillside. It used to be a cinema. Oh, Roxy. Yeah. The Roxy. That's it. Thank you. The Roxy. Blue Bridge. Blue Bridge. Okay. Blue Bridge. Yeah, we've just seen the last production, mm -hmm. uh, which is a series of Chekhov plays. Fabulous. Fabulous. Great. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> no. Um, no, this is kind of a historical question because I like history things. Um, how do you think the portrayal of the spiritual realm on stage impacted the spirituality of the church historically? Can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you think the port portrayal of the spiritual realm on stage right. impacted the spirituality of the church historically? Can you unpack that a little bit more? What do you mean by... Like... Let me go back. Um, you're talking about like the mystery plays and yeah. like the Puritan response um, to theater and all that, like how did the portrayal of like demons and angels and God on stage, how did all of that impact the spirituality of the church as these, like as they were personifying the unseen? They believed it 100%. They believed in devils with mm -hmm. pitchforks, you know, and they, be they, I mean, they haven't got TV. They had the Bible, and don't forget, they hadn't got it to read, so they had to have someone who was to translate it, so, mm. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what were you hoping for in asking that question? Was it a matter of interest? Um, I was just curious, because I know, like, um, like, historically, like, Dante's Inferno kind of informed a lot of, like, the theology of the yes. church. So, like... Was there like a theatrical side of it? Like, did um, did seeing like demons and angels personified impact the way? In, like, I don't know if you noticed like the church's theology or like the way in which the church went about explaining like the spiritual realm or like addressing like Satan as a person because of the fact that they had seen Satan as a person and like the interpretations of, like Job and like mm -hmm. biblical stories. Yeah, and I'm sure that's true. I mean, if you're going to paint a picture, paint it. So bring on the devil, bring on Beelzebub, bring on bring on everybody. Um, you know, and be able to say here in scripture, this is exactly what it says, but here are the angels, and here's this, and here's that. Um, yeah, tell the truth. Tell the truth. Back to Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is the last one I have listed right now. <laughs> <laughs> Before coffee. Um, well, like most of the like Christian theater I've seen was. It was probably more a long time ago, but a lot of it is kind of more propagandistic, I guess I would say. Like, I, like I've seen a lot of, like, you know, YWAM skits and things like that, where it's like, oh, here's a kid who grows up, and now he's drinking, and he's and here's, like, the demons all, like, surrounding him, trying to get him to drink, and then... Mine. There's some, Mine, all that. Yeah, I saw Yeah, I saw yours. Not with you in it, but... Um, and so, like, I hold that on one hand, which seems to me, like, not a very good example of art because it seems to be, like, forcing people into this very particular interpretation. Um, and it's, like, only a vehicle for evangelism. But then you're also talking about, um, like, the theater of alienation um, and just that, like, this trying to change people, like, but without any sort of agenda of how that happens. Um, and to me that also seems kind of irresponsible because it's like you're you're kind of opening a can of worms without any like any guidance and like and it seems to sort of like um, not allow for communication between the the, the playwright or the actor or the director with with the audience so um, so like those to me kind of feel like two 
different extremes. I don't know mm-hmm. if they are, but I don't know what the like what the right approach is. So it's like not propaganda, but also still like um, giving some guidance. <sighs> My immediate response to to that would immediately be, I don't mean to cheapen it, if God can use Balaam's ass, he can use anything. Hmm. The reason I say that is that if we're not careful, then both sides of it can can become full of propaganda. Hmm. You're absolutely right. Both sides. Hmm. And obviously some... some, I I don't know any productions by YWAM, but... um, I know why when, and um, I don't think they, I don't, it's probably unfair, I don't, from what very little I know, I don't think there would be a level of honesty that the Christian world needs to see, and that the people outside the church desperately need to see within the church. At the same time, on the outside, um, Is anybody outside the grace of God? And the answer is no. So that all things can be used. That's what I mean about Balaam's ass. Um, I think, I'm trying to remember a story we heard of somebody who we knew many, many years ago who came to the Lord through something so inane. You wouldn't, it wasn't evangelism, it was nothing to do with the church. But the person was just suddenly convicted. There is a God. There is a God. And I think um, if we encompass everything within the grace of God, and I mean absolutely everything, anything can be used by the Spirit of God to introduce faith, life with a big L. To anybody and I don't think we necessarily have to restrict it and so restrict the work of the Holy Spirit by saying well you can only do this um, or you have to present the gospel this way or it has to be this way or it has to be this way that the more that there are um, different avenues of approach because God is infinite and there are infinite ways of reaching infinite ways of teaching mm-hmm. and uh, yeah you want to say anything? no you're very happy okay <laughs> um, yes I mean it's I wish there were more Christian theatre companies but of course that would depend upon the support of the Christian church, mm-hmm. most of whom don't go to theatre, for whatever reason. Um, so one's educating and at the same time being educated. I think it's so, I think it's very, very sad because there are some very gifted artists mm-hmm. and playwrights and actors out there. And there are some lousy actors. Sorry, and lousy playwrights, all of whom who are appearing in the West End, in London, and on Broadway. How come? I don't know. Pray. Prayer's the answer. 
pray for those in the theatre for wisdom, real wisdom because it's, it's not an easy profession as I said you only work two, maybe three weeks in the year what do you do for the rest of the year? Mm. get rusty mm. uh, or get cynical um, or you leave the profession which is sad which is really sad but I think this is just my own personal belief the church needs to embrace the arts wholeheartedly and it doesn't doesn't sadly yeah yeah that ties in a question I have I'm wondering if it's a pretty broad question but I'm just wondering if you can speak to historically if possible what happened and when it happened in terms of not just with theater but in general with theater for sure but if you want to answer broadly anyway with um which is that how art became very contrived in christian circles and i'm talking broader than theater you can take a stab at whatever anything you want but um you know, you go to a Christian bookstore and there's like paintings of eagles flying in the woods and it's like, oh, cool, like, who, who would have thought of that, hey? Or, or you, uh, or, or you... Do I hear a cynic in our midst? Good for you, brother, good for you. Or, um, you know, I go on Netflix and sometimes they're lighthearted, they're nice. I wa- I've watched the what movie, that God is not dead uh, movie and it's not it was you know it's lighthearted and it's a nice little break every once in a while but I kid you not I've learned more I think Game of Thrones has taught me more about God than a lot of those movies I'm not recommending it to all but <laughs> but I walked away sincerely going wow this is this is you know this is really painting a picture of the need of, for Christ out, when Christ is outside of the world this is what morality looks like this is uh, but anyway, I'm digressing here. So my question is just, yeah, if you could map out what happened exactly in any way, shape, or form you, that sees, you see fit to answer that question. What happened? How did Christianity become so contrived where, as it pertains to art? Maybe it's just Western Christianity. Wow. <clears throat> my first my first impression would be fear fear that I mean if you study um, if you study criticism biblical criticism that you will see that that which upon people stood which was so rock-solid if you believe in scripture and you believe in Christ and you believe these are the tenets of the faith that then becomes eroded then you're going to believe in anything. Absolutely anything. So if there are no absolutes, then, you know. Hmm. It's a matter of interest. What was your answer to that question when you asked yourself that question and you came up face to face? I don't know if I can come up with a specific, you know, right bullseye, but I think as a Western culture in general, um, I think we like to play it safe and and it's like you like you said well okay so like with that movie God is not dead it's lighthearted it's we like to be in control right and I watch a movie like God is not dead it is lighthearted it's feel good but I saw a movie sorry not a not a play but a movie <laughs> not too long ago called on Netflix called Cavalry 
which to me was so impactful and so moving and it's Christian it's deeply deeply probing film very 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 poignant incarnation of Christ and what it means to be a Christian and uh, you know and it just strikes a chord and I think with that movie though it's gritty it's dark it's wrestling with the weight and it's not safe it really really is unsafe and it's um, and it's yeah it's and I think that's what it is I think a lot of it has to do with control off the top of my head okay anybody else not about me anybody else respond to that it's interesting um I know historically um and I cannot give dates on this but I do know the prime example I always think of is like Handel's Messiah um and Handel was a composer but he didn't he wrote based on what he could get paid for and a lot of times the funding for the arts historically was from the church so you wrote what you could get money for mm-hmm. and if you wanted to be creative you had to be creative within the bounds of the church mm-hmm. and I know that's why a lot of um like artists would go to either like whenever especially after the Protestant Reformation is like they would go to the churches that could pay them so it wasn't necessarily about like what can I express it's where can I express and actually have the like the funds necessary to express and yet the amazing thing is the Holy Spirit still comes through yeah. <laughs> in Handel's Messiah yeah. anybody else anybody else yeah um, you asked me at dinner oh. if I had done any writing while I was here and I wrote on Christian media a bit, okay. um, just some reflections um, and I guess to switch over to music because that's what I've been thinking about a lot um, there's a lot of like very safe uh, Christian music um, which I'm not a huge fan of but um, I think of many of the most interesting musicians and musical artists out there are ones who are working kind of at the margins of religion um who often don't easily fit like i can't say they're a christian artist but i can't say they're not either because they're exploring it from Mm. like some weird alternative perspective like like i personally think of kendrick lamar as a christian artist but you know if you just give him one listen through he sounds like any other rapper he's you know singing about you know booty bitches getting money (laughs) Um, but I mean, I think "Damn" is one of the most religiously yes. dynamic albums of you know the last few decades. Or I okay. think of "Me Without You." Mm-hmm. Um, this is a band where two brothers who are you know lead it. Uh, their parents were originally Christian, but then you know became part of a Sufi Muslim sect. Um, and this group will like inc- like they'll you know quote from like First Kings and then switch into like chanting in Arabic. Uh, to quoting the Bhagavad Gita and, you know, poetry of Rumi. So they're mm-hmm. just kind of blending all the all these sources as a way of trying to explore the self and the divine and the relationship mm-hmm. between those two. Mm-hmm. But those are not bands that, if you want to play it safe with your faith, you know, you can't have those sorts of groups. But for me, those those are the ones who I think, you know, can offer so much. Um, the ones who are kind of willing to, you know, push the boundaries of what Christianity mm-hmm. is and can okay. be about, okay. and where it can go. Yeah. So, and I'm sure you could apply that to film as well. That's pretty. Yeah. Um, I I would kind of agree with you, Cody, too. Just in terms of like, yeah, playing it safe, and I guess you, Stephen, as well. Like, I think. I think there's a fear that if you don't present the message like really clearly, people might read something else into it and 
then come up with something crazy. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I think um, you, were, you were talking that, about that as well, Nick, but I think like just like um, saying, what do you want to bring to this as an audience member? And I think that um, good art should be an invitation to participate. <laughs> and so it's not just about, it's not just spectating, um, but you're being drawn into, into, re into reality and being asked to bring your, like your part uh, to it. And so I think that there should be room for mystery and for ambiguity, um, but not like complete meat, like mm -hmm. absurdity or not meaninglessness. meaninglessness. No, mm -hmm. um, but, but it's more meaningful to have like space <laughs> that welcomes someone in than just, um, I think it's propaganda to, to, to just totally try to close people down and, and have only like one possible interpretation of something. Um, so yeah, I think I probably a lot of it is fear that if that the arts can open up this can of worms because um, there's different interpretations <laughs> possible. Yeah, yeah. What's wrong with that? Let's open up. I right. mean, the arts are, you know, probably the best way that God has given us to be able to do just that, just to open up anything. He's given us the art of talking, mm -hmm. the art of listening, the art of uh, scratching our eyes when our eyes get tired, you know? I'm mean, not being facetious, I really mean this. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You've been very quiet in the front. No? Okay, fine. Fair this isn't a question, this is a statement. But I think going back to like the need for the church to support the arts, part of that is definitely a financial backing. I think that's the reason that like a lot of the Christian movies out there are just like kind of like terrible from the fact that like it takes a lot of money to make a well done movie just from the script alone to have something meaningful. You need people who are very talented and willing to commit to that, and that itself requires financial backing. Because talking about like the actors who work three weeks per year. For them to be able to survive, they're going to have to do gigs that they don't want to do because that's the world they live in. So if you want to have higher quality Christian art out there, then you need to be pouring money in, like, in supporting those arts financially because that's the hardest part for them. Is like My brother's been a, um, a musician in Nashville for years, and his whole thing is he's constantly trying to find gigs, but it's so hard to get backed because of the fact that no one's willing to invest in like up-and-coming artists. And that's the whole thing within the church is there's up-and-coming creative people within the church who like leave the church to get money like I know um within Hollywood at least like Katy Perry is this um used to be a Christian singer and she was a worship leader but then she got more money from the secular arts so she went secular with it no she's a devil worshiper yeah <laughs> is that real? but not really <laughs> are you kidding well who knows uh, Illuminati of. whatever I don't know <coughs> but I think that's part of the we allow this can of worms to be opened, mm -hmm. what could happen? Someone could go down that road. Mm -hmm. And so we want to we want to try to control it. We want to try to have a this narrow road because mm -hmm. that's what we're um, it's what we're sort of taught or um, you know given direction to. But I'm not sure that narrow road means no thinking and blindly going down it. I just think it means having discernment, and you can't really have discernment unless you have lots to rub against to mm. become discerning. Yeah, but you also need people around you 
who can help you, who you trust. You know, um, I think that's really important. Again, that's why the role of I, I see it as of the church that if somebody is given the gift of being an artist, then I think the church, big T, big C, needs to support them. You know, and once they dis- discern whether this is, yeah, is this a God or not, yeah, then we're right with you. We're right with you. Um, yeah. Some of it too, like we just, we're just too lazy and like we don't want to be critical thinkers about the stuff that we absorb, like that we just like want it to be presented to us and not, not think about it. Like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I think that's remarkably honest. Yes. I think a big part of it too is just Western culture in general. We we love uh, we love our spectacle. Mm-hmm. We we not so much our art, right? Like in Europe, it's still kind of practice, as far as I understand. To especially in places like France, to buy a painting, to splurge on a painting instead of buying new uh, Nikes or something like that. Whereas here we like our. Michael Bay films, or we like, it's just, we like our contrived little eagle soaring paintings and stuff like that, but I think of, you know, great artists that I, like, uh, Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite writers, her mm-hmm. writing is like, bullseye, you know, and I don't know how many Christians would read her stuff and be like, yeah, that's... Have they even heard of her? Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's lots of work for all of us to do, for all of us. <coughs> in whatever capacity. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you for leading us to do, you're helping us do some of the work of leading us into theater. You've called us into the theater, called us to support the actor, the artist, just as God has blessed the artist, the spirit, and blessed the church yeah. through the artist. So I, I thank you for what you've done for us tonight, so thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much.